0: Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 11 of Art Proof Podcast. We're all still locked down and keeping socially distant. That is when we're not out driving to castles to check our eyesight or queuing up at supermarkets. In this episode, we're joined by artist Adelaide Demoa. Adelaide is a painter and performance artist from London and is also completely self-taught. She's exhibited internationally and her work covers issues regarding race, identity and feminism. We talk to Adelaide about her transition from the pharmaceutical industry into contemporary art and the self-analytical nature of her work. We talk about her being a founding member of the Black British Female Artist Collective and how collaboration is a vital part of her practice. We also touch on how things are improving in the art world for marginalised identities but also how there is still a very long way to go. It was really fun talking with Adelaide. We hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as we did making it. As always, listen to the end to hear details about how to get in touch and upcoming shows.
1: Yeah, anyway,
2: so we started with Hello. We're all here, that's great. Uh, You were just about to tell us about your show that's opening online in a couple of days' time.
1: Is this the Boogie Wall show? Yeah.
3: Yeah, so it opens tomorrow. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, because obviously, with the the um, coronavirus situation, the show was actually supposed to be opening in the physical space on the fifteenth of April, but because of the coronavirus situation, then we weren't sure what we were going to do, and um, and then Josephina, who runs the gallery, decided to use a virtual space that a lot of the galleries are using at the moment, and um, and she. Used this company who basically went in and with some fancy photography took um, pictures and videos inside the gallery. The work is not physically there. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how they did it, like, but but I've seen the thing and by some Clever. magic it looks like it's it's really there.
1: <laughs> it's taking someone a lot of photoshopping for that. Seriously,
3: because <laughs> the, the actual physical work <laughs> you can't get the work. Because the work is some is the work is all the way in Bristol, and so. And this happened just as coronavirus kicked in and the, the, the guy who was the driver obviously couldn't work anymore. So we just had to leave the work in Bristol and find another way around it. It's so weird. It's
1: brilliant, so it's, it's brilliant that they've managed to edit it and get it all up and going, though. I think that's looks, mad. Looks, when you,
3: seriously. You so is it know, like a sort
1: of, um, mock-up of gallery space?
3: Yeah, so they were, I, I don't know how they did it because I wasn't there, but the, but Josephina said that um, the company she used just they came in and took loads of pictures of the space um, and and video as well. And then they somehow managed to create this this 3D virtual space that looks like it actually, it, it looks like it's, I've been in the space, it looks exactly yeah. like the space. Right. Well, it is a space, it's just phot- photography, but they somehow managed to create this 3D experience and you can, you can go in there and you can go right up to the work and it's like oh. you're there.
2: In lockdown, have you contemplated Doing a, a live
1: performance
2: via Zoom or something? Uh,
1: is, there, is there a performative element to the, the show?
3: To this show, no. To, to be honest, um, I haven't had a chance to really seriously contemplate that up until probably this past week or so, um, because right. I, was, I wasn't my, I wasn't well myself until very recently. Okay. So I've only really started to. Um, I've ordered new materials, I'm waiting for them to come. I don't know when the hell they're gonna come, but I'm waiting for the new materials to come um, and get back in the studio. Luckily my studio's downstairs. But all of I'm these cr- things are things that I'm, I'm thinking about. I don't know that there's, there's, I don't feel like there's a need for me right now to do a performance. Uh, I don't have a performance that I feel like I need to do at the moment because right you now like- I'm, I'm working on like a, I'm working on a really intense, massive performance the next couple of years so uh, at the moment I'm in I'm kind of in research mode I'm doing a lot of reading.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about your background as an artist?
3: It's a bit of a long story so I'll try and Mm -hmm. keep it short but I have been practicing for 15 years I'm self-taught I before I started as a as an artist I was uh, I got a degree in applied biology and I worked in the pharmaceutical industry right Um, I was diagnosed with uh, endometriosis which is a chronic medical condition that affects Mm -hmm. the womb. And the, um, the times when I was not well met, gave me the, I suppose, opportunity to really explore uh, painting and drawing a lot more seriously because it was always a passion of mine. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was like a hobby that I did as, as a kid. And, um, and then in 2005, I, um, I made the decision to step away from pharmaceuticals and really focus on on my passion, and uh, so I started out really being more of a figurative painter and using figurative art to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. And then it was, I want to say, 2015, 16, that I reevaluated the way that I was working and completely switched everything to the way that I work now, which starts with starts with the body as a focal point or as a jump off point, I suppose. Um, but really, um, encompassing performance, but not necessarily all the time. My studio work has involved a lot of research, quite deep research, and I bring in other elements like collage, photography, writing into, into the work as well.
1: Yeah, it's, it's all quite, it seems to be quite self-analytical. It's um, a lot of stuff using imagery from your family, as well as using your body. Why is it important to, for it to be so personal? Do
3: you know what's funny is uh, I, I really believe that it's important to have a mentor, whatever it is that you do, whatever your career option, um, choice is. And um, I have a mentor called Simon Frederick. He's, a, uh, um, he's an award-winning filmmaker. And a few years ago when he was mentoring me and he was looking at everything that I was doing, and up until that point, I was really, even though I was looking at, I was interested in, researching and making work about issues that were important to me but they weren't coming from me they weren't about me and he Mm -hmm. asked me to put myself at the center of the work and because in that way he felt he felt that it the work would feel more authentic somehow and at the time I didn't really understand what he meant and I guess I wasn't really ready to hear that message yet Mm. but it was at the back of my, my mind constantly and then in 2015 when I really started to re-evaluate everything I was doing, then it just became clear that what was important for me as an artist to really authentically express the things that were important to me was that I, I, I did that self-reflecting thing. So I, I started really s- starting from me, starting from my family and then outwards, um, thinking about feminism and how that relates to me, colonialism and how that relates to me, spirituality and how that relates to me, and how that then relates to the world. And I found that in working in that way, people have been more able to connect because it just feels more authentic and people can re- relate a lot more than when I was just being kind of a newsreader artist or something. <laughs> so what what
2: yeah. I, I read the gallerist, the, more at the beginning, gallerist Christian Solga Buell said that that you looked afraid of your own body in those earlier paintings and, and that after a while you took the criticism on and, and felt you agreed with him what, what were those paintings saying to you that, that made you feel like that what where did those? you read that <laughs> oh, we've done that research I've been delving all day <laughs> oh, wow you have been deep. okay
3: yeah. so yeah so Christian when I, when I first started um, doing those body printing works the very first ones that I did I was mm-hmm. afraid, and and I was I In was nervous. what So like,
2: what do you mean? Right, right. Physically nervous and
3: yeah. yeah, I was physically nervous. I was unsure if it was the, if it was necessarily not that it was the right thing to do, but I was uh, I I think I was a bit scared of yeah. the criticism that I was going to get. Right. Apprehensive. Exactly. I, I asked I asked Christian to come to the studio and um, let me know what he thought of the work. And and he looked at them and he said in his French accent he said um, <laughs> he says he says my name in a funny way he says Adelaide like he said um, he said I can see that you're afraid he said it's, it's very obvious to me that you're afraid the work feels like you're tentative he said why right. why are you why he said you need to just let yourself go just he said, what I want you to do, so the next time I see this work, what I want you to do is put the, your surface on the floor and just push your press your whole self into it. Let yourself go. Stop thinking. Stop being yeah. in your head. Right. <laughs> I knew he was right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I knew right. he was right. As soon as he said it, it felt correct. Up until right. that point, I was like, I, I don't know. And He said that and I said, that's what it is. Mm, right. Yeah. It's-
2: yeah, good, another good mentor. You're, you seem to be very lucky with these mentors. Good communication, good honesty,
1: good relationship with did them. That, um, yeah. Did that change in your work? Did that coincide with the founding of the BBFA? Uh,
3: almost, because actually the, the BBFA collective um, were formed in 2015. So right. it was very close. Yeah. Uh, so literally the very first show that we did together, I was showing some of my uh, different selections from my older works mm. that was the very first one that we did uh, in 2015 then it was shortly after that that everything cha- literally it was a few months later um wow. everything changed but that that change was precipitated by a conversation I had with another mentor of mine she's um, her name is Rachel Arrow she's an amazing artist wow. and um she she gave me a critique of um my previous series of work and it was that conversation that precipitated that very drastic change
1: Can you tell us a bit about how the BBFA started what was the sort of catalyst uh, to you founding that?
3: Yeah I mean uh, the, the founder was actually Enam, Enam Bogno so she um, in 2015 she got in contact with me and said um, I've got this idea for a collective I think that you would be great for it and at the time I didn't know what she was talking about and then we had a meeting. And um, I think she did a call out as well. Um, And then she contacted me and said um, um, that this is the collective. This is the idea for the collective. There were eight of us initially and Mm. we got together. And so the idea was that each of us was fumbling in our own way to make our way in the industry. And we were finding that we weren't having much success, Mm. Uh, even though all of us were uh, reasonably well connected but individually knocking on doors and not getting very far. And so um, the idea when we got together, we all agreed that there's strengthening in, in numbers. Would it be interesting to see what would happen if we organized? Um, and so that's what we did. And, um, and since then we uh, have done a number of really interesting projects together that have led us to working with the Tate. We've worked with Adidas. We've worked, um, uh, gone abroad to Ghana, did a project there and Germany. Um, so there's been loads of really interesting, exciting uh, projects which have definitely contributed individually to each of our respective careers and also to our visibility as a collective as well. And yeah. I've just, I've just um, found, uh, um, just founded another collective with another group of ladies too. So I'm in mean, two collectives okay. now.
1: What, what's oh, the wow. second collective? Mm.
3: The second collective is called Intersectional Feminist Collective, and. It's, 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 sorry, interfe- Intersectional Feminist Art Collective. So, we're not all artists. One of us is a writer, and the rest of us are, are mainly figurative artists. It's, uh, Wendy Elliott, she's one of my favorite people ever. She's an amazing figurative painter. Um, and then there is Roxana Halls um, and Rebecca Fontaine Wolfe, and then myself. But they all work in a very traditional way. Um, I'm the, the only really non traditional one. And wow. um, But that one was an um, it wasn't really intentional. We got together to do a show together and then we sat down here having a meeting about the exhibition and um, and I said, this feels like a collective. And then we said, why don't we just call it a collective? Because we were going <laughs> to continue doing shows together anyway. And then we have the writer lady to write about us. So um, I'm trying to get everybody together to, to. I really, I, I love collaborating um, and introducing people to each other to see, you know, what we can do together. <laughs> There anything we can expect from this
2: op, this new collective anything upcoming or
3: that well you hope we to? were supposed to be having a show that literally what's the date today it was supposed to open on the 5th tuesday on okay. tuesday the 5th yeah, yeah. and and it, and it got cancelled bu- this was going to be a busy month for you yeah it was so yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, the, the, it's looking yeah, like it's I mean, going to be rescheduled to, to november hopefully if things okay. are
1: okay formation of these groups and the and collaboration feel vital to your progression as an artist at the time? One hundred percent. For me collaboration is everything.
3: I think if I if I hadn't had uh, if I hadn't been so passionate about collaborating, I don't think that it would have been a lot more difficult to get to, to where I am now because it's through those collaborations and even my artist interviews. My artist interviews have introduced me to so many people that have facilitated my career in major ways. It was through mm. my artist interview that I even met Rachel Arra. Also through the artist interviews that Enam heard about me to, to, to talk to me about joining the collective in the first place. And then in the collective I interviewed uh, Car- is Carleen Souza. She's an amazing street artist. Then obviously Enam, she does um, performance and textile art. And then Aisha, she's an amazing figurative paint are very colourful, really interested in colours and how colours affect our our emotions.
2: You're very proactive Adelaide. Like you, you get in a lot apart from your actual work so as you touched on there your YouTube series, two collectives now, you've sat on panels for talks and discussions, you obviously feel that's an important thing to do, it's good to not just be the away in a studio painting but actually be active in other elements of the
3: artwork um I I feel like it depends on the person ultimately for for me that's that's my personality type I've always been like that um yeah I've, I've always been collaborative I've always liked working with people um and I like doing different things uh whereas another different personality type may prefer to just staying in the studio like a another good friend of mine Arlene Mondera she's Amazing. She's a sculptor. Arlene is is she's very reclusive. Arlene will be in her studio for a year and you won't hear from her. <laughs> like <laughs> me constantly bugging her that she she you know oh. she'll come out of her shell oh, sometimes. Absolutely. But um, yeah, yeah. that's her personality that and that's how she feels like she can be in the best position emotionally, psychologically to engage with her work in the most productive um, and uh, an amazing way and she's rep- she, was, she represented Kenya at the Venice Biennale a couple, um, four years wow.
1: ago. Yeah, she's, um, Actually, she's- I watched your interview with her today.
3: Did you? <laughs> <laughs> what, one of my favorites.
1: What, what kickstarted the conversations? What made you think I want to record these conversations I'm having with artists?
3: Okay, so back in 2011, um, I had a, a really bad bout of the of the endometriosis. Mm. And, um, and so I kind of had to withdraw. But at the same time, I still felt like I wanted to still have... Um, I still wanted to be connecting with artists. And at that time, I also felt like it was very early days. I didn't know anybody. It's like, how am I still going to keep getting to know people when I'm locked away in here? Because I can't go anywhere because I'm not well. So... Um, I started reaching out to people on the internet to do Skype interviews but, and then I would record them and then I would uh, I'd type them out and, and, and put them on my blog. So that's how it first started and it's, that's actually how I re- met Rebecca Fontaine-Walph Wolfe, is in the InFem's intersectional feminist group that I'm in now. So that was how it started and the very first interview I did with her was actually a Skype video interview with this really bait software. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it's on YouTube, it's there, but it's, it's, it's just, it's really, it's, it's, it's not great. But um, the interview that we got was, was really interesting and that sparked my interest in doing further interviews, but those ones I just kept them to the, um, um, being written on the blog. And then it was really in um, 2015, 16, when I decided to do a video series. And again, this was, I was having a conversation with another mentor and, and he was saying to me, you know, you're, you're super active. What are we doing with these interviews? The interviews are, were good for me in terms of developing relationships and also to, in terms of um, getting to know artists, getting to know um, gallerists. Um, so it was like how it makes sense to continue them, but in a different format. Everything's video these days. Mm. So why don't you just do video? You're good at presenting. Just do that. And so that's what I did. And at the time I had an iPhone 6, I just took my iPhone 6 and I started interviewing people. But the people I was interviewing then were at, in my studio at Thameside Studio. And so I, um, the initial interviews were all um, in the run-up to open studios. That's how I met Rachel.
1: Um,
3: and I made several friends there. And then it, then it just grew from there.
1: What have you learned from having these conversations? Are there are sort of reoccurring things
3: I, I think the, the, the main thing that kept on coming up is relationships. It's all about relationships. Mm. That kept, that was recurring over and over and over and over again. And that's not, not relationships in the sense that <clears throat> you can't have a close, intimate relationship with every single person you interview. But having, that, ha- having those open conversations um, and opening up a dialogue and forming connections so that those people, mm. they then form a part of your network and so there are certain people who um, are such, a, Im- such an important part of my network now that I know that if I need something, like if I'm going to New York, then Tim can show me around, you know. Or yeah. if, I'm to, if I'm going to Nigeria, then um, Victor Hikomenor Ek- Ek- can show me around, you know, or they can introduce me to a gallerist or this, that and the other. And it's not, it's not that it's reciprocal because you don't do these things thinking that something's going to come back. You just uh-huh. do them because you want to, you do them because you're learning something, you do something them because you're giving back, you do that something, you do them because you're also giving back to other artists who are watching and potentially learning something. But it's all about yeah. relationships. That's the main thing that keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. Whether that is that an artist is going to introduce you to a gallery or he's going to bring you into a show, or you're going to bring somebody into a show. It's like it's like things just like. Might be talking to someone, and you'll be like, This person will be perfect for that, and then you just get in contact with them, and that's it. Boom, the connection is made. (laughs) Um,
1: like, has lockdown made it difficult to kind of maintain or develop these relationships at all?
3: If anything, lockdown has made them more intense,
1: right? (laughs) Which I did
3: not expect. It's like, now I spend so much much time talking on the phone and doing Zoom calls. Mm Yeah, yeah. Like and, and really deepening so my the, my closest friend circle, we're all artists and curators and writers um, but my closest friend circle I haven't spent more time with these people in all the years that I've known them <laughs> until now whereas before everyone was too busy flying here, flying there, show here, show there busy, busy, yeah. busy, busy not enough time to talk so everything, everyone was on WhatsApp all the time, mm. you know, when can we meet up blah 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 and then things would just get go to the wayside and perhaps you wouldn't end up meeting up but with this yesterday I had a a cooking set, cooking and dinner with my friend Jennifer (laughs) she's a photographer I know, she was like I haven't seen you in ages Adelaide come for dinner, okay let's do dinner (laughs) and (laughs) so we decided on the ingredients, going to do Thai green curry, I'm leading, set up the video, set up the tripod in the kitchen, she followed along and we are having a chat and catch up and then we sat down and we had dinner together. I had dinner with her and her flatmate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very nice. I mean, it's funny to think how um, a situation like this would have affected us 20 or 30 years ago when we didn't have this technology and we didn't have this, this way of staying in touch. Um, so it's kind of amazing that everyone still is able to, to stay so connected.
3: Yeah, yeah I mean, definitely. Just, yeah. Even just
2: seeing your face makes a huge difference,
3: doesn't it? Huge difference.
2: Um, has, it, has it kind of gotten in the way, do you feel? Has it due to, because I kind of felt like that at the beginning, there were so many people checking in with phone calls and everything. I was actually thinking, I thought I'd have more time to do work, whereas I feel like I've actually got less time. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. constantly stuck looking at a screen or on the telephone and, yeah. and not actually able to use my hands to produce work with. Have yeah. you found it frustrating or you're just happening to go with the flow of it all and just I'm going
3: back. with the flow and screen time has gone way up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's actually kind of embarrassing to look at how much the screen time has gone up by. Oh, um, yeah. But um, I wouldn't say that it's got in, in, in the way because I, I, up until just the other day, I was like, I was not very well anyway. So it was great to just be talking to people, but I've been journaling a lot um, and um but from probably as soon as I get my new materials I'm just gonna to have to be much more disciplined uh, about saying this is work time and this is social, social time yeah. um, because the, the kind of work that I'm going to be making more is uh, now is going to, to require a lot of concentration but saying that I have had a lot of time for reading
1: I've been doing a lot of reading
2: that's really important been, to your work yeah, yeah, it really yeah. Sounds, it's a big
1: thing isn't it and you're yeah. saying studios downstairs yes just to expand on Rowan's question has it affected has lockdown affected your routine creatively I mean I suppose if your studio's downstairs you can access it whenever you want
3: yeah I can I can access it whenever I want because um it's it's kind of in the same building but not so is it I I live and work in Bo Arts um studio oh, okay. content, and yeah. I'm, I'm I'm the only so this. There's one permanent flat and there's the artist in residency flat. And then you kind of have to exit the flat and go into um, it's the same building, but it's a separate entrance to go down to where my studio is. So I can go there whenever I want, which is which is great. But now at the moment, I'm, I'm more in the research phase of my work. So I'm in here yes. surrounded by all my books. I, I literally just the other day went through and organized my, all my books with this library app. I've got like 550 books. And wow organize them properly it was so satisfying <laughs> it took me about four days but it was so satisfying everything is organized by subject matter whenever I need to find a book I know I'll just go to that section and it'll be there so yeah, yeah so at the moment I'm deeply engrossed in in in, in research so I'm just in the flat do, doing that until is that
2: daunting or exciting or a bit of both it's exciting. exciting exciting it's exciting yeah it's exciting yeah,
3: yeah. I mean the the research side of things it fulfills my uh, the scientific side of my brain, I suppose, because at the end I did do biology at university. So um, that 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 kind of thing of researching um, is different. is 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 important to me, and, yeah. and uh, I really enjoy it. Great. The
2: the work is very good at communicating. I feel the pain and struggle. it's brilliant at that. So it's made me wonder that once once you complete it, do you feel emotionally drained?
3: That's an interesting question. Okay, well, with regards to a performance, it's a weird thing because at the end of every performance, I get some kind of weird performance high. The first time it had it happened, I didn't know what the hell was going on. Like I felt like I was I literally had just taken something. Right. Like, I was spinning, I was so excited. And it's, I think it's all adrenaline. the adrenaline, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's that's weird. But then the next day, then there's a crash, and you just oh, I just okay. end up having to just rest. Um, yeah. But with regards to the, to making work in the studio, it's not that same intensity is not there because um, the work is more laboured. I'm spending more time doing research. I'm spending more time putting the work together. So it's not the same sort of feeling. And and ultimately, I suppose it depends on the piece that I'm working on. There's a piece I did called. Um, rebirth of Amar which is in that show that's opening tomorrow and it's a it's a giant piece it's four meters by three meters wow. and um, and that is a repeated image of my great-grandmother over that's the whole cool. thing yeah but it's not it's not it's not um collage in the classic sense of the word it's a it's a weird technique where you stick the paper and then you have to rub it with water to reveal the image and it's it's a repetitive thing it's a repetitive process that um, and it's a very specific process. And that work took me four months to make, going into the studio wow. every single day 12, day, 12 hours a day, just listening to Audible all day, just doing that over and over and over and over again. So with, with that work, um, there were times when it was, uh, it was kind of soothing. There are other times when it's frustrating because I'm like, there just seems to be no end to this work. And then when the work finished... Then it
2: was like, oh, thank God, this film. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long time. Yeah. yeah. How many of those live performances have you done now then?
3: I did 10 last year. Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: So that's quite so many. What? Right. Wow. And, and yeah. years, yeah. And when did they start? 2016? 2016, 2015. Yeah. Oh, right. So a lot. How, how many do you think overall? I don't know. Um, I
3: don't even know. I haven't counted. Oh. how how,
2: how much of that your feelings like you said you said the very first time but i don't think that was a performance but how um different are the feelings from when you first started where you must have been very apprehensive a little bit fearful to now i would imagine you're a lot more confident like is there a big change in how you felt at the beginning to now or yeah yeah there's
3: definitely um i think i'm more comfortable now i think the, the first time not that i was uncomfortable but I feel like that feeling was so unfamiliar to me. Yeah, uh, yeah. But now the feeling is familiar and I have, a very, I have a set routine. Whenever I'm doing a performance, I'll fast for 24 hours. I will meditate oh, okay. before I go onto the web stage or whatever it is. Right. And, then, and then after the, after the performance, I, I need to um, get myself back into private for a, a while and then go and get some food. Yeah. Can <laughs> <laughs> you
2: talk a little bit about how valuable the audience input is to those pieces? Like the overhearing, their reactions, the energy. I, I read that you really feed off the energy they give during a performance.
3: Yeah, it, it, it depends on the performance um, because there are different performances. So, the, the very first one, um, which, which is the This is Median Consistency of the Self, the blue one then that one, the audience is important. I'm feeding off the audience directly and yeah. um, I'm, I'm listening to them, I'm watching them and I'm, I'm then um, kind of reenacting what they, uh, um, the feelings that I'm getting from them and and, and, and expressing it on the canvas somehow. But, yeah. but then with um, a performance like, uh, my durational performance that I did in the studio, I did a 31 hour durational performance uh, in the studio in 2018, um, which was My uh, my Body is Present, homage to Anna Mendieta. That one, even though pe- people were watching because um, it was being streamed live...
2: Yeah, I read about
3: it. I, I wasn't really conscious most of the time right. of the of the audience. Yeah, you have to be... Um, yeah, I was just in yeah. the zone. I was just doing what I was doing. And then there's another, uh, another one which... Um, was just filmed, and that one, that one was a litany for survival. So that one, I, I just did it in front of the, the camera guy, and there was an assistant, an assistant there, so there was no audience really. Um, it was just being filmed, and oh. and but, but, with any performance, you just get into the zone and you get on with it. So it just, but ultimately, whether or not the input impo- the audience is important, it depends on the performance. So sure. like some performances where the importance is integral like the into the mind of the colonizer performance that one the the audience is a part of the performance that's a participatory performance where i'm inviting the audience to come and cut my clothes yes um,
2: yeah.
3: and so 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 that one the audience is vital and and it was proven to me just how vital they were when I, i've done that performance three times now and the difference between how the audience interacted with me in london and oslo compared to how they reacted in new york was crazy. So the performance involves um, Into the Mind of the Colonizer is the idea was based on I found 204 out of print books which yep. was um, written from the point of view or written by people who were actively involved in the colonization process. Right. right. And, and this goes from the 1600s all the way up to around 1920 for the whole of the British Empire. <laughs> So from the Americas to Africa, to India, to Australia. right. Um, and uh, in the, the performance I did in London with Open Space Contemporary, the structure of the performance was that I, I was dressed in Ghanaian funeral attire. Both my parents are from Ghana. Yeah. So the idea was a laying to rest of that history. right. So I'm dressed in Ghanaian funeral, funeral attire and I'm reading from selected bits of those texts. Right yeah. and when I finish the reading, I then go out into the audience and I hand them this pair of scissors and I invite them to come and cut my clothes and the audience they, they take it in turns, they will pass the scissors on and they keep cutting and cutting and cutting until mm-hmm. everything is off, and you can see that my skin is covered in what looks like blood right? Um, and then I reactivate because it it's dry, I reactivate the blood with sheer butter, which comes from Ghana, and then I imprint myself onto. Um, giant uh, giant pages of these texts, which are on the floor, mm. um, and that's the performance. And in the London one and the Oslo one, the audience did as they were told. Cut, 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 cut. Everything fell off, imprinted, and it was re- <laughs> it was very intense. It was very emotional, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you could sense the energy in the room as to them being a bit apprehensive about partaking in that because it's kind of a, a violent act against yeah. a human being. And that, like, even though my myself was the representation of the violence against Africa, the violence against the, bo- the black body, and it's just an act, they still felt apprehensive about doing that. So there's this kind of tension in the air which was necessary to get the message across. But then in New York, when it came to the cutting part of the performance, one guy came and took his shirt and cut his own shirt, dropped it on the floor. Oh, Another guy came and got the scissors, right. tucked it into my waistband of the skirt. Another lady came, cut her own hair, she literally pulled a fringe oh, down wow. and cut her own yeah, hair, yeah. dropped it on the floor. And then the so final and thing... And responded to your work. Ooh. Exactly. And wow, then the final yes, thing yes. was a guy came and he took, he took the scissors And he threw it at the back of the room like this, violently, (laughs) the back back wall of the thing. So that had to cut the whole um, cutting part of the performance. Right. So at this point, I was only down to my skirt. I still had the skirt on. So I then had to just continue with the rest of the performance with the the, the, um, the sheer butter and the body printing and finish it. It was the most intense performance I've ever done in my life. Mm, and that right. was, it, it was made intense by the, by the audience.
1: I mean, is that kind but, of participation welcome? Does that kind of add something to it or was it? Did it sort definitely. Of distract- like yeah.
3: it, the gallerist was very upset and she, she came downstairs to, to check on me to make sure I was okay. And I said, this is, this is great. Yeah. This is, like, <laughs> I didn't expect that, but for me, this means that the audience was really engaged and connected yeah. with what I was saying. And that's the whole point. The point, is to evoke emotion, to evoke discussion about important things from our past that we need to face in order that we don't repeat the same nonsense and in order that we can understand what's happening around us because everything that's happening around us is a direct consequence of the things that we have done in the past, Mm. right? So we have to face up to these things. So if you you make an artwork and people engage with it to that level, that means they heard you.
1: And what do you think? I mean, it's, it's funny how that garnered such a different reaction in New York, and I wonder what that is. You know, is it the you know is Britain so reserved that we we wouldn't give such a reaction?
3: I think there's de- definitely a sense of um, restraint and respectability mm. here that um, in in the states, I feel like they they because of all of the history especially the racial history, racial tensions, the, the art community are more politically engaged in that sense. So yeah. when, stu- they, when they are faced with something like this, it really affects them.
2: I've heard you feel yeah. in general um, that women artists are finally getting more recognition in these last few years. And then in, and in particular also black, Female artists, and, and both your collectives kind of um, represent, you know, the fact that you also want to bring w- female artists forward. Why do you think that has happened? Why do you feel that's accelerated in the last couple of years? What's what's happened in the atmosphere? Do you think?
3: I think it's a it's a complex it's a complex thing. Um, I think it's about time. I feel like there's still a hell of a lot more work left to do. It's it's not enough yeah there's like there's nowhere near enough Uh, um it's a start um but i i do feel like we have um maybe we're starting to reach the tipping point hopefully we are starting to reach the tipping point and um where we get exponential growth and we we get go more towards parity but um i don't know if it's realistic in our lifetime i'm not sure i don't know um in in terms of in terms of complete parity i don't know but i do feel like um One of the things that's been happening is uh, there's been a definite correction going on in terms of curators, writers actively participating in this correction process whereby they are going back, they are looking at the history books and they're looking at who has been left out on the grounds of race, gender, Mm. you know, and they're giving these people, they're giving people who deserve it the limelight to, to to kind of redress that balance and there's a, there's a still there's a huge way to go there's a huge way to go but that correction that's taking place through people writing giving shows giving institutional validation all of these things are added to what's going on uh, socially and yeah. politically all of those things in the mix are combining to mean that 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 this conversation is is moving forward more now than ever before.
2: And who can we be looking out for? Who should us and our audience, you know, what names, who's who's making these corrections? What 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 curators or gallerists are helping with this change? Apart from yourself, of
3: course. <laughs> Battery will get you everywhere. Yeah. Um so I definitely Ose Bonsu once Bons, who's a young curator, uh, I met him back in 2013. He's now head of um, the Africa Collection, I think, at the Tate. And he writes a lot for Freeze. Um, his predecessor, who um, sadly passed away, um, Okwi Enwazor, he passed away, um, was it last year or the year before, uh, of cancer. But he had spent, year, I mean, decades documenting African artists Mm, in a a very intelligent way. And and his writings are really being taken very seriously. Um, And Bissy Silva was another one. She passed away the same year as well. She's another one who had been doing a lot of really important writing. Uh, In terms of people to look out for, um, I've mentioned Ose Bonsu. uh, Pedro Ocean, she works at the Tate. Um, She's a a really exciting up-and-coming curator. Uh, Then uh, Lisa Anderson, she's also a friend of mine. She's an excellent writer, curator, art advisor. Who else? Uh, uh, Catherine Finity. Catherine Finity is a giant intellect, um, very, very intelligent curator. Uh, I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head. You're quite good
2: with your facts and figures. Do you know um, how... <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, I've, I've heard,
2: I've, me as I say, all that the deep delve research today—I've heard good percentages. Do you know um, what's the percentage of the Tate's collection is by African artists?
3: Oh, I don't remember. I know I wrote about it somewhere, and it's very small. Yeah, it's something Rope, very small. Yeah, Expanded on. What was the figure you found?
2: No, it was actually your, your one on female artists. Um, four per- Was it four percent? Very low. Oh, you're talking about the yeah
3: oh, okay yeah yeah
2: yeah, yeah. Um, you've also in more recent years since 2018 sort of reconnected with um mta art, MT MTA art. art sorry yeah. yes um, with marine can you talk about that a little bit and i've heard you talk highly of that working relationship and how mm-hmm. that's really helped your career leaps and bounds
3: So I, um, again, through my interviews, it was through an interview with Robbie Walters, actually. Uh, So I interviewed Robbie back in 2017. And while I was interviewing him, I was with an intern at the time, and he was working with a lady called Katrina Alexa. Katrina asked him my name. She went and Googled me and um, then said that she would be interested in working with me. So she introduced me to um, an amazing organization called AWITA, Association of Women in the Arts, and so basically all of the most amazing, um, accomplished women who work in the art world. Okay, this, you recommend this, um, them. very, very highly recommended. Okay, They've great. been doing some amazing things over lockdown as well, but oh, okay. um, so AWITA is kind of like this networking group. And I started talking to Katrina, I started working with her, she started advising me, she brought me into a Awita, she got me artist bursary membership, which was great, it meant I could go in there and network with everyone for free and yeah. go to all the amazing events. We and like then, that. yes, and then <laughs> one day she said, I think that you should meet my friend, Marine Tangi. I think you guys would really get on. And I'd never heard of them before, um, so she took me to an event which was the launch of Jennifer Abissira's, um bollards. She had these uh, kind of bollards by London Bridge where she covered all the, these loads of bollards with her artwork. And as I went along to that launch and uh, I met Maureen then, we didn't really connect then, but then they invited me to submit a proposal to do uh, my very first performance at the Unfold event uh, in 2017. And at the time, I'd had the idea for the performance, but I didn't think I was ready for it. So right. they challenged me, really. And, and so I submitted the pro-proposal, and I was thinking, I don't know about that, because I didn't think <laughs> I was going to be ready to do that performance for another two years at least. And so I submitted it, and they said, yeah, you're doing it. OK, I have to do it now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and so I did it. And then that's how Maureen uh, spotted me. She initially expressed interest in working with me, but... She at the time the way she worked was she liked to she liked to spend a bit of time getting to know you first, seeing if your energy was correct, um, and then and then offer representation. So from there, I then went to them and said, look, I, it's time for me to do a solo exhibition now. I was impressed with you guys in Unfold. I've got a backer, right? So if the, if my backer pays, can you help me to do my next my my next solo show? They said sure. So that's how we started working together. And, and what do you places. mean by help?
2: What, what help did you need then? If you had your backer and obviously you producing the work, what, what did you need then to bring to the table? And maybe also explain to the audience that MTR isn't a gallery, it's an, an gallery. agency, yeah. So yeah. you could just you know, yeah. explain that situation.
3: Yeah, so basically the, um, I felt like I, I, up until that point I'd done plenty of exhibitions myself,
0: I yeah. curated
3: them, I have sent out the invites, I've done the hanging, I've done everything in terms of exhibition production myself okay. with the help of some friends. Every solo show I had done up until that point is how it was done. Exactly. And it's come to the point where I, I, I felt like I, these guys were experts in, in exhibition production and I wanted them to help me. I'd okay. seen what they were capable of doing and I wanted them to help me to do it. Right. Um, because I recognize that even though I'm capable of doing things myself, yeah. um, I wanted to hand it over to people who actually that's their job
1: okay, <laughs> so, yeah and um, fresh eyes and, up until that point were you completely self-taught you said
3: completely self-taught completely self-funded um mm. and then i um i get um, i was lucky enough to attract a backer um and so he was helping me to fund a lot of the stuff that i was doing as well so um so for so for me Working with them, it was a relief to actually hand over the responsibility of doing that stuff so I could just concentrate on making the work. So there's the money guy there, there's the, the show producers there, and there's just me. All I've got to do is just make the work. I don't have to worry okay. about anything else. And, it was a at this point,
2: you still weren't signed, were you? You were just sort of collaborating on this one exactly. show, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it was. So halfway obviously, both parties.
3: Yeah, it was halfway through that whole process that Maureen said, OK, I want to sign you now. And that was that
2: and that has been what you feel has been a successful relationship and why what's what's happened that sent things rocketing since that uh, collaboration together
3: i felt like she understood she understood and we were in alignment in terms of what our aims and objectives were for for what i wanted for my career so yeah. um
1: so as, as the art world seems to be shifting online and doing things like your online show, is that something that's come, come quite naturally to you?
3: Well, it didn't have to come naturally to me because it, I didn't have to do it. The gallery
1: did it. So
3: <laughs> all I had to do was to send them the images and then she would work with somebody who did it. No way I would have been able to do that myself. No I mean, way.
1: the process <laughs> of having to exist in this way, is that something you're quite fearful of or is quite daunting in a way?
3: No, I think I feel like I'm quite flexible. And, um, and I also feel like I'm, I'm both a hermit and a social butterfly. So Mm -hmm. I very much enjoy my solitude. I had really enjoyed being in my house and not having to go anywhere. But at the same time, um, I do love being around people. So when I do get to go out and be around people, I enjoy that too. So, um, so for me, um, I, I think I've, always naturally quite enjoyed being on my own from when I was a child I would lock myself in my room and I'd read my books and I'd daydream um then come to even my first job in pharmaceuticals even that job most of the time yeah. I spent by myself because I was a rep so yeah. I spent most of the time on the road having to self-motivate get out on the road at six o'clock in the morning and not get home until seven or eight o'clock on my own and it's completely self-directed running my own diary the yeah. whole lot. So I've kind of been trained to be yeah. that way inclined.
1: Anyway. About your past career. That's such a dramatic change. Yeah. Was it, did it feel like a huge risk at the time? Was there like quite a big adjustment period or did it just feel like the natural thing to do?
3: Yeah. I mean, it was, everyone thought I was completely crazy. I, mean, I
1: thought <laughs> with I was no, no artistic training or anything like that, it was just like, right, I'm going to do this.
3: Yeah. I remember a conversation with my best friend when I was pacing up and down my living room saying to her, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And she was like, Adelaide, you're mad. You don't know anything about the art world. You don't even have A-level art. They're not going to take you seriously. You're crazy. I was like, just watch me, just with such arrogance. Yeah. <laughs> but she was 100% correct, yeah. 100% <laughs> was say, you keep coming up correct. against
2: that sort of attitude. Over the years because essentially yeah. you're seen as an outsider artist yeah you on yeah. the conventional route uh, the other so we'll we'll finish on this question is i like to ask each of the artists we interview if you have a piece of your own work hanging in your home and if so why that particular piece i've
3: got two right oh
2: okay
3: <laughs> 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 Show surprise,
2: <laughs> and how you. big how big are these pieces
3: then, it's more, it's
2: big one. how big because I know you know you said earlier they go up to four meters
3: oh so ah, no, they're, they're not that big there's one right here which yeah. is um the, from the Picasso's Women series um yeah. and uh, it's called Marie Therese and then there's one of the bible pages Well, it's the front cover of one of the bible series over there um the John Brown's bible and oh. um I had the John Brown's bible just because I like it and this one because it's the only one I have framed right now and I wanted something on my wall. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> it's going enough. into a show next week, so I'm gonna have to get something oh. else framed.
2: What the one behind you reminds me actually, something I did not mean to ask earlier, is your colours are usually sort of a crimson, a blue, a white and a gold. Mm-hmm. Can you just, why why these series of colours? Why have you stuck to these?
3: Uh, well, when I first started doing the body printing series, um, I was really stuck on red because red has always been my favourite colour initially. And then the more I started working and bringing, bringing in elements of my heritage and culture um, and tying it to my actual blood, the more that meant. Yeah. Then I started to think about bloodline. Um, so I'm talking about bloodline a lot in the work. So then that, the more that became relevant. relevant um, but for this particular work... Uh, I chose red because the, um, the gallery was gallery different and that was curated by Rebecca Fontaine Moore and they were working with um, the play Picasso's women. And um, because it, it, each of these stories of these women were being told from the point of view of the story instead of the point of view of, of Picasso for a change. So this, it being all about women and also being quite dark, I felt the most feminine yet dark color that I could possibly use to really express what I wanted to express with that work was this deep red right yeah. so that's why I chose that. Um, with regards to the blue, um, um, initially like I said I was doing red body prints and then when it came to doing that performance um, that was really a feminist response to Eve Klein's work. So it had to be ultramarine blue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the gold, because, um, again, I was interfacing with Klein and he had a thing about gold. Um, but then there's another layer for gold as well for me, which is my family coming from Ghana, which was formerly Gold Coast. And gold yeah. used to be the source of, of Ghana's wealth. Um, so that has a deep connection to, um, my heritage and, um, and then black, black again is uh, one of my favorite colors. I'm generally always wearing black. Um, and, but aside from that, there, there is this, 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 um, especially when I do the body prints of it, there's this, this, uh, it's an absence of color. And so when you think about absence of color and, and, um, in relation to race, um, in relation to gender there's uh, then you uh, you get thinking about the abs- absence as a lived experience as well as it being just
0: about absence of color so thanks for listening all the way to the end we'll be back soon with more episodes with shepherd man yinka and isabella summers to get in touch with us email to artproofpodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on instagram at artproofpodcast